Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. I feel like it's finally starting to feel like summer. You know, it's one of my favorite seasons. Um, Although, obviously, this summer is uh, different than any other we've ever seen. Um, And that also goes for commencements, uh, which are obviously looking a little different this year because of the pandemic. Yeah, summer's nice because it's like right when the pollen starts to kind of decrease and I can open my eyes <laughs> and breathe and the nasal passages open up. But yeah, you're right that um, the commencement season is a lot different this year um, with the inability for, you know, high schools and colleges to have these big events where, you know, the hundreds of students sit in the audience and listen to these very uh, renowned speakers. Um, but some have uh, come up with some improvisation to get around the pandemic, uh, public health restrictions, uh, including Chief Justice Roberts, who gave a commencement speech on Saturday via uh, video conference. He recorded a short video message for uh, the graduates at Westminster School in Connecticut, which is like a a small prep school. Um, And he had some interesting things to say about the pandemic and, you know, just how it's kind of shaken things up for the graduating class. I think the pandemic is the world's way of saying to mankind, you're not in charge. The pandemic has pierced our illusion of certainty and control. I think that's a pretty well-spoken way of of gauging the the current environment. Uh, Roberts also went on to, to lament, though, a bit, you know, how the pandemic has changed uh, some of the ways the Supreme Court does things, Um, obviously going remote, but also just, you know, no more handshakes. It's a small gesture, but it reminds us that whatever our differences, we are united in a common calling. We, of course, cannot shake each other's hand now. I look forward to the day when that tradition can be revived. He also deployed his typical dry humor in, you know, an otherwise pretty serious speech. Uh, And he had actually a funny crack about um, how the justices were preparing for their teleconference oral arguments. Now, as for working remotely, I was asked whether the justices participating in arguments from their homes would wear robes. I didn't know if the person was asking judicial or bath. Yeah, that's that's a good one. The the judicial or bath. Line. I think I think that was certainly a question that I had in my mind. But uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I won't speculate as to the answer there. But um, <laughs> so it was a uh, you know it was a pretty slow week at the court. Again, uh, the court did not take up any new cases um, from its conference last week uh, on Tuesday uh, when it handed down its orders list. But it did take action in a pretty interesting case also involving the coronavirus, which has kind of pierced every aspect of life at the Supreme Court. Uh, In this case, the Supreme Court sided with prisoners who are actually battling with the Department of Justice over the conditions of an Ohio federal prison that's in the midst of a deadly coronavirus outbreak. So this is the federal prison in Elkton, Ohio, right? That's been making news lately for, for just having like a rampant number of COVID cases. Can you give us a a little bit of background? Yeah, so basically what the Supreme Court did on Tuesday was it it refused to block a lower court order that told the government 
that you need to start moving your older and more medically vulnerable uh, inmates out of this prison that's in the midst of this deadly pandemic. Um, the Supreme Court said in a very short order that you know this issue was not properly presented, although Justices uh, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch uh, dissented. But yeah, you're right. As to background, uh, this case involves the Elkton Federal Correctional Institution. It's a low-security prison in Ohio. Um, it has about 2,500 prisoners. And that's important because the prisoners are housed in kind of this dorm-style housing where there's very close contact between the inmates and, you know, they argue that social distancing policies meant to combat the coronavirus is basically impossible. And the result has been, you know, what they call one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks in the in the country. There's been hundreds of confirmed cases there uh, and nine deaths. And so what happened in April is that a federal district judge agreed with the prisoners and ordered the government to, you know, come up with a plan to move, you know, the more vulnerable inmates out of the prison, either on home in, home confinement, uh, compassionate release, or transferring them to another prison. So about a month goes by, and the prisoners, they say, you know, there was like no action taken on this federal court's injunction against the government. And so they seek, um, you know, they sought earlier on, uh, you know, a motion to enforce uh, this order. And so the court responds and, and hits the government with another order saying that you actually need to, you know, start get you need to get going on this. You need to find a way to start getting these people out because you've only, you know, selected five out of over 800 vulnerable inmates for home confinement. So meanwhile, the Department of Justice asked the Supreme Court to, you know, block the district court's original injunction. It said, you know, the district court didn't apply the Prison Litigation Reform Act properly. Um, and it also made this argument that, you know, the, uh, the prisoners couldn't bring, you know, these habeas actions, habeas corpus actions to challenge their conditions of confinement under the governing precedent. So what exactly did the Supreme Court say on Tuesday? So again, the Supreme Court refused to block the lower court's original order in April that, you know, told the government they had to start, you know, coming up with this plan to, to move some of the prisoners out of there. Um, it was, like I said, it was a short uh, order that was unsigned. And the court said it was a weird procedural posture that basically the government hadn't actually challenged the subsequent enforcement order that the district court handed down about a month later after its original one where it said, you know, you weren't doing a good enough job of getting these prisoners out of here. And so... The court said that, you know, we're not going to prejudice the government by like ruling on uh, this issue when it hasn't properly been presented to us in so many words. And so, again, uh, Justices Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch would have granted the DOJ's stay application and, and kind of, you know, uh, shielded the government from having to you know come up with these plans to move some of these prisoners. Um, you know, it wasn't it's not the first coronavirus case that we've seen at the Supreme Court. And, and judging by some of the other cases that have been piling up, it probably won't be the last. But this is one that came down on Tuesday that, that caught a lot of people's attention. We're definitely looking at those coronavirus cases um, at a bunch of them uh, just to see kind of what might pop up on the docket. Uh, we're also looking at, at uh, several other cases uh, that the justices are pondering right now as we're recording. Uh, the justices are holding a Thursday conference uh, via phone uh, as opposed to, to their kind of regular Friday conference. And they're looking through something like 134 cases, uh, many of which are are realists, basically. Uh, so it's that they're looking hard at. Um, and there's some threads that seem to connect some of the pending cases. And we wanted to just kind of talk through uh, two of those uh, kind of big pools of cases that seem to be um, high on the justices' radar. Uh, and, and I think 
pretty ripe for them to to be taking a case from from those uh kind of pools uh the first tackles second amendment uh this the first tackles uh the second amendment there are about 10 or so second amendment cases right now that the justices have been looking at for several conferences now yeah this one's interesting because the court just decided a second amendment case this term actually just a, a you know a few months ago um so why would the court be interested in you know taking up another one so soon well Basically, because the court had that case. Um, and as I think many <laughs> listeners likely recall, you know, it was uh, the, the, the case coming out of New York City that essentially got mooted because the city changed its laws. It was, um, you know, a case kind of uh, challenging how New York City was restricting where uh, gun owners could could have their guns, basically, um, or, or travel with them. Um, and, you know, it caused a lot of controversy on the bench. Uh, Some justices, you know, called foul that it was docket manipulation that New York City changed his laws. Um, And Justice Kavanaugh, you know, he he concurred with the decision for it to be mooted, but he did raise the concern that the case, the heart of the case, that, you know, lower courts aren't properly applying Supreme Court precedent on gun rights, uh, naming Heller, which gave uh, the you know, the Second Amendment right and McDonald's, which applied it to the states. Um, and he said, that, you know, straight out, the court should address this issue. Um, and maybe we should take up uh, one of the, the several Second Amendment cases that are before the court for cert. Yeah, pretty forthcoming there. <laughs> you know, we should, <laughs> we should take up one of these cases. Um, so tell me about these cases. Uh, you know, the, the, the New York one, I like you said, it involved uh, restrictions on transporting firearms um, in New York City. Is that kind of the similar issue that are being presented in some of these other petitions or, you know, where are those Definitely, definitely. A lot of the cases deal with New Jersey's handgun permits. Um, one of them, Rogers versus Gruel, uh, asks whether if the Second Amendment protects the right to carry a handgun outside the home for self-defense, can the state, New Jersey, condition that on a permit that also requires you to show a justifiable need. So with New Jersey's handgun permits, um, you know, you have to basically show that you have a need. And the way they define it is like, you know, this urgent necessity for self-protection, um, you know, as evidenced by like specific threats or previous attacks. So so gun owners so you have to have saying, like a stalker, basically, to, <laughs> yes. to get a so, gun. You know, so gun not owners just are basically saying it's, yeah. it's too high a bar and, and it fringes on our Second Amendment rights. Um, and there's a similar case also up for cert that opposes uh, Massachusetts permit scheme as well for basically, you know, similar reasons. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, th- I remember that being a component of the New York case that was tossed out as mooted is, you know, whether I think the petitioners had the, the, the gun group in that case was like they want the Supreme Court to kind of expand on Heller, which recognized the individual right to bear arms, and in McDonald, which kind of, like you said, applied it to the states, to kind of recognizing not only that right to bear arms, but the right to transport them outside of the home. So that would be kind of the blockbuster next step in, you know, a conservative Second Amendment uh, jurisprudence. So that's really interesting that that could come up, you know, maybe be part of the the docket next term. I'm wondering what else, uh, what's that second pool that you were referring to of, of cases that the justices might consider? So the second pool is uh, all about the qualified immunity doctrine. Okay, so what is that? That sounds like <laughs> pure legalese. Yeah, I, you know, for the layperson, it's not something you really come across a lot. Um, although 
just quickly scanning our coverage uh, on qualified immunity. It is a big topic, uh, raised a lot and being tackled a lot by circuit courts with a lot of division, which I think makes this particularly a rape. So for, qualified uh, immunity, does that have anything to do with coronavirus immunity? No, does not. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Okay, <never. laughs> so basically, it's a, a legal doctrine uh, that protects government officials, think cops, civil servants, etc., um, from liability when they're on the job. Unless plaintiffs, you know, someone who's suing the cops and the civil servants can show that the actions violated their constitutional rights. Uh, in my head, I, I kind of liken this a bit to having tenure for, for a professor. Okay. So, you know, a lot of the cases before the court are dealing with police officers um, and very specific scenarios, you know, whether a police dog uh, being used on someone who has his hands up and is sitting down violates a constitutional right and, you know, goes past that bar for qualified immunity. Um, you know, whether damaging a house that the, the cop is allowed to go into lifts that qualified immunity protection, etc. The court has kind of expanded this doctrine of qualified immunity for years. I understand it doesn't even come from you know, an actual law that was passed by Congress at some point, it's kind of judge made. And, and that's kind of the the grounds for the challenge to it, right? That it doesn't have any real basis in the law. Yes. So some of the, the cases that are currently before the court today, um, you know, are straight out asking the court to either reverse or at least recalibrate the way they kind of created this doctrine, um, which came out of a, a 1967 case. Um you know, and, and the main argument is that, you know, it's an almost impossible bar to get past this doctrine, which does not come out of necessarily common law origin and, you know, came out of this kind of judicially expressed policy that's just not working for the courts. Um, you know, in, in a couple of cases uh, particularly stand out from the Fifth and, and uh, 11th Circuit that are asking uh you know, to revisit the doctrine. Uh, there's also a case out of Minnesota that is, you know, saying, look, we have a huge circuit split. Seven circuits say that the burden of persuading that, you know, this is a qualified immunity case is on the plaintiff. Five other courts say it's on the defendant, you know. So there's, a, you know, a real lack of guidance here on, on just when and how you use this doctrine. Yeah, this also seems like an incredibly timely issue, you know, with the cases of police brutality that we've seen in the news of, you know, targeting African-Americans, you know, over the last several weeks. So I expect that if the Supreme Court does, you know, act on any of these cases, it will be closely watched around the country for its implications for um, that issue. Um All right, so next week we will come back and talk about what the court has done with some of these cases, whether it's taken them up or kicked them down the road, and hopefully we'll get some more opinions that we can definitely dive into because the end of the term is right around the corner um, at the end of next month. So we will see you soon, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks so much, Jimmy. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.